You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Uh, hey, before we get going, I just want to tell you about our sponsor this week. It's a podcast called Breach. Uh, Breach is a podcast that takes you inside the world's biggest hacks, who did them, why they did them, what's at stake. Uh, the second season is out now. It's called The Equifax Story. This time it's personal. You may remember that Equifax lost 145 million social security numbers in what has been described as the worst data breach of all time. So if you want to hear the inside story of that, subscribe to Breach, B-R-E-A-C-H, in whatever podcast app you are listening to this right now. Here's the show. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Aaron Lammer. With my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky, back at it. Hello. Hey, Aaron. What's uh, what's hey. doing for the program today? Good one here. On the show this week, Rosecrans, Baldwin. Um, I first became aware of him um, via uh, the zine, soon to become website, he published, The Morning News, which... Early on, uh, when we were running uh, uh, long form in the first few years, um, there was like a small orbit of publications that I feel like were always um, batting way above their weight, just publishing incredible stuff. And I was like, how does this work? What's the funding? And uh, the morning news was chief among them. I think it's like the first place I probably read uh, a lot of our guests, like Paul Ford. Um, he actually founded uh, Morning News in 1999. Uh, he helps continue to oversee it, although he does lots of other stuff now. He writes a lot for GQ. Um, he had a pretty great piece. I think his last piece for GQ was one in which he um, joined various wellness cults uh, in Los Angeles, which is his uh, new and adopted home. Um, so really interesting interview, someone who's done all kinds of stuff and has really seen a lot of the last couple decades in publishing firsthand. Hey, Aaron, if you've, um, done all kinds of stuff, how would you go Look, about if you've published everywhere? The only place you have left is email and, uh, there's no better place to send emails as your publishing route than MailChimp. It's uh, it's weirdly modern, I'd say, uh, you, the email newsletters. Uh, what is old is new again. Uh, every day, 
I see new uh, email newsletters pop up, and I'm happy to sign up for them because uh, they mean one more minute I am not destroying my brain on social media. So uh, thanks to MailChimp for help making this show possible. Sign up for an email newsletter today. It'll it'll uh, it'll come to pay dividends when you're uh, when you got a book out like Evan. Mark DeCristina, the uh, marketing chief at uh, MailChimp, if you're listening, weirdly modern could be a good new slogan for you guys. (laughs) MailChimp, weirdly modern. And now here's Aaron with Rosecrans Baldwin. Welcome, Rosecrans Baldwin. Yeah. So... You are um, the rare guest I've had on the show who I can trace your work back almost to uh, before the internet, um, not before the before anyone was reading on the internet. So um, you are the founder of the Morning News, or the co-founder of co-founder. the Morning News. Are you still involved? Yeah, heavily. I still almost every other day put together an email of links that of stories that I find interesting around the internet. Yeah, in 1999, Andrew Womack and I, along with a couple people over time, started what was essentially a link blog. We were both working for a web design agency. And in the mornings, we both had time. This is in 99, internet bubble. Uh, we had more hours than work to do. Yeah. And we were both sort of news junkies. And so we would put together this little email. Literally, I guess it was one of the first email newsletters of stories we found interesting on the web at the time that we thought was relevant to our bosses. And then stuff that we just thought was fun or interesting or weird. And we'd send it out. How much reading was there on the internet in 1999. Right. I was a senior in high school and reading none of it. Right. You had, I don't know, Yahoo News was there. Yeah. You had, you know, wonderful early online magazines. Word magazine was particularly good. Well, Slate were... was started out. Salon yeah. was out there. It was the really rough early days. Uh, feed was out there, which you had people like Stephen Johnson started it coming from. Alex Ross was writing there before he was writing for The New Yorker. It was literally sort of Wild West feeling, if only because the design was so crappy. You know, you would stare at these web pages and it was like almost like crunching on your screen in front of you with the little typography. But the stories were good and the journalism was good. And so it was exciting. And none of the mainstream outlets yet were really doing that much. So it was fresh. Did you have writerly ambitions at that point? Yeah. I went to college pretty much to become a writer. I sort of knew that English or writing was going to be my thing. I studied poetry nonstop, loved it, lived it, and then moved to New York City with this copy editing job at a graphic design studio, a web design studio, and quickly got sick of poetry. Yeah. And I always loved reading novels. And that's what I was reading on the subways in the morning. And so I just decided, well, if that's what I love reading, you know, maybe I should take a shot at writing it too. Because all I'd written in college was poetry. I hadn't taken a fiction class. I wasn't doing journalism. And so I just gradually started just filling up these legal pads in the mornings before work. I'd get up at six in the morning and start writing. And I had this grand idea for a novel. It was terrible. So that one got shelved. And then another one came after that and that one got shelved. But that was the start of sort of my ambitions for it. Did you see online publishing as like a different avenue by which you might get work out? I always wonder with people who um, have deep poetic ambitions, because 
forgive me if this is incorrect, but there's almost no audience for poetry in right. America. I rem- I worked briefly at W.W. Norton, which is one of the bigger poetry uh, houses. And if we sold 1,500 copies of a poetry book, it was like the success of the year, yeah. you know, other, other than a few people. Um, whereas I imagine that as writing online became a bigger deal, you could get that many people to read an article simply by putting it in the morning news's roundup. Right. Yeah, I think it's true. And at that time, so we had started this email newsletter. We both left this company. Blogger had just come out as a piece of software. And our boss asked us if we were going to leave the company, we could start publishing it online so he could still read these little link compilations. And then 9-11 happened. And shortly after 9-11, a friend of ours, Andrews and mine, suggested, why don't you start publishing more? So we set this goal of we would publish an article every day in addition to doing these link roundups. And then the morning news just sort of went from there and sort of blew up. But yeah, the web at the time was just throw yourself at it and suddenly it's there and it's available to everybody if you can find an audience. I think we've had several people who published in the early years of the morning roots on the show uh, Paul Ford comes to mind um, but what was it like having your formative experiences as a writer and editor in public and building a sense of community rather than I think of graduate programs as usually sort of a sense of isolation right in the early days in New York it was fabulous because everybody had a blog but everybody was about 41 people And so you would gather at bars over on the west side or downtown and you would meet Corey Sika, you know, was doing a blog called East West and working in an art gallery. Leslie Harpold was running her blog. Um, Paul Ford was doing F Train. You know, Gawker was only barely a glimmer in Nick Denton's eye. Todd Levin, you know, who's a wonderful writer now at the Conan O'Brien show in Los Angeles, was doing Tremble.com. I mean, I can go on and on. What we really wanted to be with the morning news was like a gritty, gossipy, rougher version of The New Yorker. We wanted to be a village voice of like, you know, the year 1999 or something. How was something like that financed during this period? Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. Without finance. There was very little advertising. I mean, there was some, um, and we gradually got a little bit more, but we never were able to pay people very much. Yeah. You know? We paid people at the base rate was like $50 for an article. And I think the top rate was two fifty because we didn't literally, the advertising revenue wasn't more than that. I think what we were trying to do, which was just these sort of wonderful, long articles, personal essays, mainly reported pieces, you know, uh, Jay Caspian Kang wrote this amazing story for us about gambling addiction, I think was about 7,000 words long. And I worked with him on it for weeks, I feel like. And I think we paid him $50, you know, because we just didn't have cash to pay people. But you could still produce excellent journalism, excellent personal essays with copy editing, with fact checking, uh, get some cool illustration to go along with it. I think people forget how much a new style of writing emerged from that. Like as you built an audience there and brought in more and more writers, like how would you describe what worked in that context, in that sort of nascent online long form journalism context? Yeah, I think what worked often had to have a wit to it. There certainly is room for things that have no wit that are just dry or sad or melodramatic or just sentimental. But in those days, to us, perhaps it's just because of what we were reading. If it had a wit to it, have a smarts to it, you saw people coming back to that. And then on the second side, 
if you coupled that with some kind of personal testimony, because the idea of the blog, you know, as it slowly emerged, was just diary, it was confession, but it could become more than that if people could work ideas into reported story and still with a good sense of humor to it or sort of a fuckitness to it, then online that catches. For you, like as you were building this publication, you were also becoming a writer yourself. Right. Um, what was the experience of like starting a magazine, trying to recruit a lot of like pretty hyped young authors who would go on to big things and then also yourself trying to do the same thing as them? Yeah, it was it was fun. I mean, it was straight fun because writing's so lonely, right? Writing is ultimately you versus yourself versus, you know, solace. And I'm still to this day getting up at five in the morning and working on a book, working on an article, something like that. But to have companionship along the way and people that you can speak to about it and not like in any sort of highfalutin way, but it's more like, dude, this is hard and I'm struggling and I'm lost right now. Yeah. And then to also see people who perhaps are more comfortable in fiction working in nonfiction, like Tony Doer, who went on to publish All the Light We Cannot See, you know, when we first met Tony, he had written us a letter and it showed up in our The Morning News' P.O. box. And then he was a fiction writer mostly, but, you know, he started writing nonfiction for us. Um, to see people who are comfortable in one genre or the other for us was exciting because I think fiction writers often make some of the best nonfiction. And I know personally I write both. So it's to have people around you as you're coming up at the same time is incredibly supportive, you know? But yeah, I mean, I went from, I quit the web design agency and was writing just crap. I was writing articles on how to wash your dog. I was writing pamphlets for real estate companies and just grinding out fiction in the mornings. And then eventually was able to build sort of a fiction career and a nonfiction career, the you know, side by side. But to have people trying to do the same thing and particularly people who, it seemed like we felt like we were working outside of the system. In those cases, it, is nice to have a friend. So to uh, catch listeners up on what's happened to you since then, you have a couple novels out. You have a nonfiction book about your time uh, spent living in Paris, working in an ad agency. And you write uh, pretty frequently for GQ, I would say largely experiential and tennis-based nonfiction. <laughs> is that fair? Yeah, it's true. I've done two tennis stories for them. Uh, one was where they had the idea of trying to enter me into the U.S. Open. And this was because all these great tennis players were hiring former legends as their coaches. We were like, okay, let's have Rosecrans try to do that. And then I promptly lost to a rising 16-year-old in California in a tournament and cried laying down on the ground. Uh, and then the dream assignment for me was one day my editor from GQ called up and they said, this was about a year ago, he said, what are you doing Friday? And I was actually moving apartments. My wife and I were moving at the time. And I said, well, I, you know, I'm moving uh, this week. And he's like, well, Friday, I need you to go to Switzerland to go hiking with Roger Federer. I was like, I can absolutely work out how to do that. Uh, and so that was pretty great. So literally, like, we, my wife and I, we, the movers came, got into the new place. I turned around, went to the airport, and, you know, 36 hours later was seeing Roger Federer, like, get dressed for a photo shoot. When you're on extremely short notice yeah. profiling Roger Federer, are you going in with any idea of what this article is going to end up like? Like, how long did you have with Roger Federer? Uh, I had a lunch. A lunch. Okay. Yeah. So pretty limited, compact period of time. 
Are you thinking about like what you can get out of that lunch, or are you just having lunch with Roger Federer? I, you know, it it requires a lot of preparation in order to just have lunch with Roger Federer. So mm. I, being a person who tends toward anxiety and also a former Boy Scout, I think put those two things together and I will exhaustively prepare so that I can come across like a complete idiot. Because the idea of sitting down with someone like that is that you should know everything about their life and their career so that you can go in with 12 questions in the back of your mind. You know, if six of them are written on a notepad. You have three for emergencies in case he goes in directions you're not anticipating. But you need to ask him questions that suggest that you don't know the answer because you may think he's going to go one of three ways. And I already know his whole career and his backstory, but I need a spontaneous Roger Federer on the record for my story. I don't know the shape of the story yet. I have an idea of what we want, uh, what the magazine wants. I mean, for example, the magazine at the time was profiling him because he was going to be on the cover. He was on the cover because the readers of GQ online had elected him the most stylish man of the year. So for whatever reason, whatever that means, they sent me to go meet him. And he was in the midst of this astonishing comeback that no one saw coming. He had taken this time off from tennis for the first time in his life. He'd come back and he had won the Australian Open. And everyone was like, holy shit, we thought this guy was done. You know, let him go disappear into the mountains of Switzerland and never come back. And for one example of a way to prepare for it, I reached out to friends of mine who were hardcore fans of Federer. And I I really liked tennis. I started playing when I was in my 30s. I had to lose some weight. There were some tennis courts near my apartment. There was an old Dominican dude giving lessons for 20 bucks an hour. I was like, okay, sign me up. And then I just went really hardcore into it and just fell in love. In any case, I, however, was never a huge Federer fan, but I knew people who were. So I reached out to them and I was like, what questions would you ask Roger Federer? And this made their brains melt. I mean, the idea of like sitting down with this guy, one friend of mine, he's a lawyer. He sent me photographs of three pages of a legal pad that he had written out the questions, scratched them out, written them out again. So you go in trying to be prepared for all the ways that a spontaneous conversation can go. And sometimes you get thwarted. Sometimes it goes in a wonderful new direction you don't see coming. And so I try not to control the narrative. I try to be open to it, but mindful all the time that I have to get a story at the end of the day. And I'm not there to become his best buddy. You know, I have to be able to write a story that he may hate in the end. At the same time, personally, I don't know about other people. I always do fall in love with my interview subjects a little bit. I sort of can't help it. I hope it leads to a better conversation. But when you spend that much time with somebody and you think about them that much and you've studied and read them that much, it's difficult for it not to feel affectionate and intimate in the moment. And then you get on the plane, you get in the car, you get back to your desk, you transcribe the interview, you write up your notes, and then they become more two-dimensional. And it's no longer someone that you feel so close to anymore. And then I can do the dirty work of trying to pin them down with an angle or with a story. Hey, hey, I'm going to pause things here. I'm Aaron Lammer, the co-host of this show. And believe it or not, I host other podcasts. One of them is with a former guest from the show, Jay Caspian Kang. Every week we get together and make fun of the world of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, which we are alternately obsessed and disgusted with. Uh, if this sounds fun to you, subscribe. Coin Talk. C-O-I-N-T-A-L-K. It's in the podcast store and whatever app you are listening to this in. Uh, give it a try. Uh, you'll probably know pretty quick whether you like it or not. 
Okay, here I am back with the show. You have done, I, I would say it's an emerging series. Uh, the first one I remember, and there may be more examples of this, uh, you went to a adult summer camp. I guess it was sort of an anti-tech or a uh, unplug yeah. summer camp. Yeah, digital detox. Digital detox. Uh, and you more recently um, did something of a survey of uh, wellness experiences in the Los Angeles area. You live in L.A. now? I do, yeah. Your online presence uh, says you live many different places. <laughs> <laughs> I like being a little bit uh, mysterious online, if only to prevent you know the NSA's lovely little trolls from finding me. But yeah, I think my Wikipedia entry has me living in North Carolina. Yeah, Chapel Hill, I think. Right, yeah. yeah. So I guess I would describe all these articles as... A skeptical person does something that is almost designed to thwart a skeptic or Mm. that is for the non-skeptics of the world. And you tread a very effective line of expressing how you really feel, but also for the sake of the story, giving it a shot. Um, When you're doing one of these experiences, like what... Do you take notes? Do you have a, this is how I'm going to act? Like in the case of the summer camp story, it's almost an undercover story. Yeah, it is. And they allowed me to come. You know, we talked to them beforehand and they said, yeah, we'd love for you to come. And the idea is that they take people, uh, people are paying $800 to go away for about four or five days in the woods, in this case, Northern California, and just go offline. But in going offline... No one uses their real names. No one talks about their jobs. No one has a phone or a watch or a camera. And everyone uses little nicknames and people dress up in costumes and there's lots of play, let's say. And so, yeah, I was there as sort of an undercover reporter as long as I didn't interfere with anyone else's experiences. And so I would be sneaking off. I don't know. I think my whole career is me sneaking off to bathrooms and sending myself text messages or recording voice memos <laughs> or writing down little things on the back of receipts and shoving them in my pocket. I mean, that's, yeah. I do that for every story, I think. So I assume that the summer camp's interest in having you write the story is that it is a business on some level that is looking for exposure. And in assigning you the story, GQ is assigning someone who's not going to at least initially be, uh, you know, um, painting your face blue and uh, doing silly dances, which are sort of the the trademark of the camp. Yeah, um, but let me interrupt. I mean, yeah. I, well, and two, one for facts, like you should know, there's no reason if you know this, that the camp has actually since shut down. Oh, I did not know I that. believe they're trying to get it back up and going. But two, I definitely... Uh, had face paint on and my hair was shaved off and in addition to being spray painted red and I think yeah what GQ probably likes about it is that I've just been able to do these stories where it's kind of like throw Rosecrans into the middle of something strange or weird or wacky and just see what happens perhaps because I think I come at all these things with a pretty open mind and I certainly am a skeptic about a lot of things but i go into all these experiences very open to them. I mean, I can't imagine doing otherwise because if I were to go into it, I would get, well, the story would be crap, you know? Well, it puts the person reading the story somewhat like, it allows me to sort of imagine myself at this camp, yeah. right? If it was a full-on believer from the beginning, in this case, or the case of the wellness thing, like 
if you were a believer in uh, wellness cults, you couldn't really write an article <laughs> about wellness cults, right. you know, like right. then you would be writing propaganda of a sort or you would be writing, I guess, a travelogue. Right. And these are more stories that have an arc to them in which you attempt to embrace uh, something that doesn't come naturally to you and you report what it's like, sort of like the tennis thing almost, like you yeah. are trying something new. Right. Um, yeah, it all started for them. We sent me out to go hunting for the first time with my uncle who oh, I forgot who that has one. passed away, but he was a great elk hunter in Montana. But in terms of the what was recently published and happened in Los Angeles, the assignment was pretty simple. The idea was... These days, if you go to Urban Outfitters and you see what's on sale, you know, there's a lot of ponchos. And if you go to Whole Foods, you can buy a Crosby, Stills and Nash record in checkout. There are people who are finding a new way to sell crystals to stick up your butt for, you know, healing purposes. You know, I'm leaving out, I'm making Goop nameless because we all know that's Goop. one thing after another seems like the new age stuff is trending again. And so GQ is like, okay, Rosecrans, you live in Los Angeles. Los Angeles has been the hotbed of new age stuff since the 60s and 70s. Go out and spend a month and try everything you can, as much of it you can, for a month and see what it does to your mind. So starts off like goofy and wacky and fun. And it was meant to be a 3,000 word, fairly light piece, you know, humorous and hopefully there would be some commentary on what makes Los Angeles different from other places and why is it such an incubator of new faiths and trains of thought. And so I did wacky stuff, you know. I went on a juice cleanse. And on the third day of the juice cleanse, because it was so effing miserable, I was in the bathroom and I hallucinated a bean and cheese burrito and came out. I literally had like a tear coming out of my... There's going to be a lot of tears in this, of course, the story. <laughs> but I came out and my wife's like, just eat the burrito. I went to Topanga Canyon. I took a workshop on how to communicate with plants. So they sat me down in front of a bush and I talked to the bush silently for half an hour and the bush would say one thing and I would say another, supposedly. I had never yep. heard anything from the bush. Lots of other people did. I spent a long morning with a UFO religion in Hollywood, people that beginning in the 70s believed that their former master was in touch with an intergalactic council of elders who could bring us great wisdom and also transmit energy to troubled spots around the earth. So right now they are transmitting a lot of energy to the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea and also to Washington, D.C. So they're very pleasant people. And they actually had a nice champagne brunch afterwards. I had a great time with them. Uh, Also went to a Gnostic ceremony in a strip mall in northern Los Angeles. Angeles County, which I think proves truth to the idea that the best things in Los Angeles are all in strip malls. Uh, But this was like in the basement. It was a Gnostic ceremony, which is essentially almost like a Catholic religious ceremony complete with a Eucharist, except the Eucharist was performed in front of a naked woman who is sitting up on an altar with all these candles around her. And you take the body of Christ, which was represented by like a small snickerdoodle and the blood of Christ, which was like a small thimble of red wine. You toasted her vagina and then turned back to the audience. Uh, and they also interestingly had a champagne brunch afterwards, so maybe that's like an LA custom. That's I a, don't know. Th- that's the uh, the unifying thread. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, uh, how, how do you in all these situations not make fun of the people that you're theoretically trying to um, embrace their lifestyle at least for a day? You know, because I think I don't find anything to make fun of. Mm. I think the only times when I'm 
when I would be interested in making fun of someone is if they are harmful, if they're pernicious. And I'm not even looking to make fun of them. I mean, I think when I hear you say make fun of, I think the first word that comes to mind is judging them or analyzing them with yeah. a certain bent towards revealing them to be, I don't know, a hoax or um, fools. assholes, fools, like they've been duped, yep. right? But these people, for the most part that I met, were open-minded, earnest, thoughtful people. And they happen to be, let's say, have a they were bent in a certain way. And I don't mean like bent in a weird way. I mean like they're literally, their trains of thought, their minds bent in a certain direction and they just sort of saw life a little bit in that direction. Or this was one part of their lives in the same way that, you know, I wouldn't make fun of someone who's really into poker or someone who's Wiccan or someone who's, I don't mean to, <laughs> no, I'm going to get in trouble for saying that a, you know, sincere set of religious or uh, spiritual beliefs is similar yeah. to a gambling card game. In any case, what I mean is that people choose to put things in their lives and in the end, it's hard not to just see them as just another person. Yeah. But then you meet people that are trying to harm people, people that are trying to pull one over on people. And those are the people that as soon as you run into it, I instantly, the analytical side of my brain is going to click into high gear to sort of just be a little bit more, have a little greater scrutiny of what's going on in front of me to sort of be like, wait a second. It's fine to believe in aliens and UFOs. What do I know about it, aliens and UFOs? No big deal. It's another thing to say, you've got problems. I have the solution. Come meet me as your savior. When we start going that down that road, my antennas are up. Don't. And I only say that because that's where the story ended up going. I was going to say, don't most, like, I could be wrong, but I feel like most places that a seeker finds, eventually when you get deep and serious enough um, have that latter element you're describing, whether it's uh, give me your money, uh, give me your life, give, you know, uh, separate yourself from the people who don't believe this. Um, tell me about, as you sort of pulled back the surface on some of this stuff, what you found. Yeah. And I, and I would even start by saying we're sitting in a recording studio in Brooklyn and this is, bedrock Americana. You know, Brooklyn, New York goes back a very long time. And I know New York is constantly changing, but I got to tell you, when you live in Los Angeles, shit is changing right in front of you. There's not the sense like in Boston, Philadelphia, and New York City that this is old, old America with these massive federal buildings made out of this really heavy stone. In Los Angeles, I was just talking to someone, his name's Kit Rackless, former editor of Los Angeles Magazine and the LA Weekly and the LA Times Magazine. And he was saying what keeps him in Los Angeles, and he's originally from the East Coast, is that it's literally changing right in front of you. And there's this sense that you can be part of that change. In other words, in Los Angeles, the sense that everything is both perilous, like it could just rupture underneath your feet any day, and fires are cascading down the mountains, and torrents of mud are wiping out houses. All of that is real. And there's also the sense that you can be made a star, that you can strike a fortune, that you can become someone new. You know, you're catching me, actually. My thoughts are half baked, right? So I apologize, and I, I hope these are coming yeah, out. We, 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 because... we appreciate half baked thoughts. On <laughs> well, the I'm show. in the middle of a book, and I don't know. I haven't figured the book out yet. Is it about Los Angeles? It's about Los Angeles. Okay. It's about Los Angeles County, particularly. It's about the idea of LA more than Los Angeles City, because I've lived there for like three and a half years, which is nothing. And there is a great tradition of 
people, mainly men, showing up from the East Coast in Los Angeles and looking around for like two days and be like, oh, this is Los Angeles. Let Got me it. tell you what it is. Yeah. There's a great quote from Jonathan Gold talking about how he spent his life hearing from East Coasters who would go to LAX, get into their hotel in Beverly Hills and turn around and explain Los Angeles to him. And I'm very cognizant of that. But at the same time, after I moved there, it just didn't make sense to me. I couldn't figure it out. You look on the map, it doesn't make sense. It's thousands of miles, right? It's 88 cities inside of the county. When you say LA to someone, you could mean downtown, you could mean Hollywood, you could mean down by the water in Long Beach, you could meet up in the valley in Burbank, you can meet out on the coast of Malibu, you can mean South Central, it's all these different places. So for about three years, I just started taking all these notes and reading all these books and just hoovering up everything I could about Los Angeles because I just found it fascinating, particularly because I love it like nothing else. Like really? I've lived in Paris. I've lived in New York. I've lived in rural North Carolina. I've lived in rural Maine. I grew up in Connecticut mostly, a little bit in Nashville, a little bit in Chicago. I studied abroad in South Africa. And LA is just like hits me in a way that, and it's for all of its problems too. I mean, it's incredibly complex and with a lot of despair. You know, it imprisons more people than any other city. It has 50, perhaps 58,000 homeless people in the county. Uh, the school system is a disaster. It's one thing after another, but there's also a lot of highs to it. This is a long way of saying people there often I met during the course of the story, but also in my life are really seeking something. And I write in the story that one thing I know for certain, if I know anything, and I have no credibility in Los Angeles, like I said, like I'm not from there, you know, I can't claim anything, but I've just gone out and I've just been interviewing a shit ton of people and doing all this research and all these reporting things. And people are yearning for stability and stability doesn't exist in Los Angeles. People fall through the cracks all the time. And so it, you can go around and there's this sense of doom that goes with you, but there's also a sense of wild hope. And there's also, I think on top of that, a sense that people are really in it together. So all that makes for a really interesting city. And as I was investigating this article, I got turned on by someone to another group. And this group was called MITT, which stands for Mastery and Transformational Training. And to explain what it is, it helps to know the backstory a little bit. In the 70s and 80s, there was a quote unquote transformational group called LifeSpring that achieved pretty incredible popularity for what it did and how much it charged and some of the stories that came out of it. And so listeners may know a similar group called Landmark Forum. Mm -hmm. There's a similar group called Est. Est was a big part. If you've watched The Americans recently, it was a big part of some of their seasons. In any case, what they promised was, in essence, in my opinion, a psychological boot camp that you would come in with all your problems, all your dilemmas, all your traumas in your life, and they would break you down and they would strip everything apart and they would point out to you what was wrong and more importantly them, why it was your fault that you need to take responsibility for anything that had happened to you in your life in order to get past it or yeah. incorporate it. And then after that, you know, you're paying $800 or something like that. And you're going to come out a brand new person. And then they're really excited to get you into the next phase of the treatment, which will have even more extraordinary, quote unquote, breakthroughs, they would say, but you're now paying $1,400. And then there's a level three after that. And then there's classes and workshops after that. In other words, it's a multi-tier marketing kind of scheme, again, in my opinion, that just has this weird yeah, you know, semi-culty vibe to there's it. A, there's a book I read about this period where this idea kind of – there's multiple businesses built on this idea that, like, uh, it's your fault, basically, right. or you are your own fault. The book's called Cults in Our Midst. Sure. And it's a lot about how, like, that pyramid structure, how, like, there's a lot of people bringing in – leads 
to a smaller and smaller number of people who get deeper and deeper into it and it's like weirder and darker each like level you go up in yeah. it well, so you... what happened was and there this knowledge that i have comes from a wonderful series of reporting that was done in the washington post in 1987 mostly the stuff that i'm citing comes from a reporter named mark fisher who i spoke to in the course of my reporting lifespring became incredibly popular doing these trainings as they call them hundreds of thousands of people went through what was revealed in the post reporting is that dozens of people had very adverse psychological reactions to it and eventually lifespring was in essence shut down uh, the post reporting revealed that the guy who started it was basically a con man and had prior conviction in his past related to mail fraud they essentially got sued the dickens out of them and the guy shut things down and then 1997, there was a woman who owned a beauty salon in Beverly Hills, and she had loved LifeSpring. And she reached out to the guy and said, look, can I license those trainings off you? I want to restart it. And so she did. She renamed it because LifeSpring at that point had a terrible reputation. She called it Mastery and Transformational Training, now known as MITT, rebooted it in a little basement down near LAX, I believe, or at least that's where I did my training. At the time, you know, a couple people would show up, and now you've got hundreds of people going through it every couple weeks. And it's all these levels of training from the basic, the advanced, the legacy, and on and on and on. And so someone, in the course of my reporting on all these other sort of, let's say, more banal or, you know, sort of goofy New Age stuff, was like, oh, well, you have you heard about MITT? And I was like, no. They said, well, you got to try it. And so I just went in, and I paid for the course and signed up. And then that's where this story took a much darker turn. Yeah. Because was this something like, were you like, oh, this is going to be too big to fit into this story that also <laughs> has like juice cleanses in it? Right. Yeah. So suddenly we went from a 3000 word story about juice cleanses and Kundalini yoga. And um, I did a long afternoon session with a witch, the Oracle of Los Angeles. I mean, she was a wonderful Oracle. Like if I ever need analysis or therapy again, I'm choosing a witch over anybody. <laughs> but yeah, suddenly all of that got shunted to the side. I mean, there's, I think all of that reporting, which I probably spent three weeks doing is one paragraph in the story. Because once I got into MITT, we knew that the story was going to be about MITT. Because you go in and the rules are pretty drastic from the beginning. You can only drink water, or eat food when they tell you. You can only talk to other people in the room when they can tell you. And again, imagine that you're in a huge hotel ballroom in the basement of a hotel near Los Angeles International Airport. Uh, when you arrive, you and your approximately, I guess there are about 150 other trainees like me, uh, you arrive, there's all these people, two dozen of them, young people, very handsome, all races, all ages. Well, you're, the trainees are all races, all ages. The trainers themselves are too, but they skew young. They're all dressed in formal wear, suits, some in tuxedos, and they're wildly clapping as you go into the room. And then for the next two hours, they explain what you're going to be doing over the course of the following five days. And that is basically, like I said, in my opinion, the sort of psychological boot camp. But the rules are very strict. So no eating uh, unless they tell you, no drinking unless they tell you, no talking to other people unless they tell you, uh, no going to the bathroom except when they tell you you can. I mean, at one point, as these rules were being explained, I got up to go to the bathroom and the trainer, she was sitting up on this dais above us. It's a really intense environment because what 
a part of the five days that I went through, there's a lot of humiliation that goes on, a lot of public shaming. And what was frightening, one of the most frightening things for me about the experience is how quickly the crowd seems to want that and quickly obeys her rules and quickly turns on the people that don't obey the rules. And so me going up just to go take a piss, you know, I'm walking out and quickly two of the other trainer's assistants like sort of come towards me as if to sort of stop me. And the trainer says, makes a joke about how, you know, understand that when you go to the bathroom, when you just leave the room on your own, of your own spontaneous will, you are, in her opinion, giving everyone else in the room the excuse to do the same. In other words, to stop obeying her and obey themselves, which, as she sees it, in my opinion again, over the course of these five days will interrupt their training, which is some of them, according to her, are there because their lives depend on it. They're coming there because they have severe trauma in their lives, distress. And in fact, you hear stories from people the whole time that you're there about horrible sexual abuse, horrible uh, addiction problems, people who have been contemplating or pursuing suicide. And they, for whatever reason, have wound up in this room. In this room, they're being told, we'll solve their problems. And so if you get up because you have to go to the bathroom, you are sort of breaking that training. And the gist that was said to me, and this is what I, you know, we have in the article is it's basically like I was almost murdering somebody yeah. because I had a large bottle of water before I came into the room. Well, I mean, that's an idea in Scientology and a lot of things that suppressive people that basically anything you would do against the will of the group is a form of violence against uh, the people who need the teachings. But I'm curious, like, as you went into this experience, when you went to that summer camp, it felt like you recognized in order to do this, to understand this fully, I need to embrace it. I need to make myself at least for a few days a believer. I will get the funny haircut. I will get the hairspray. In trying to understand this MITT, it doesn't feel like you can fully become a believer. Like giving yourself over to that was dangerous. But I'm, I'm interested in how you regard sort of that skepticism versus belief uh, in these two extremely different contexts. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I'll probably contradict you a little bit and say I actually did give myself over ah, to okay. it. And my wife was a little bit worried about it. Mm. And this is in the story. But, you know, on the last day, it's a five day course. And the first three days, I believe, you're there from 7 p.m. until about 1 in the morning. The last two days, you're there from about 9 in the morning until about 1 in the morning. And you're constantly doing these experiential exercises where they're shutting off the lights. And 150 people are being led through these visualizations where you're imagining your parents in front of you. But your parents are dead. And what's the last thing you would say to them? And people around you are bawling and they're screaming and they're having this hysterical sort of trans of all this pain that they have or perhaps are conjuring in the moment and it's flowing out of them as an emotional person, as a regular human. I couldn't help but participate at some level, right? And I think what would, for my mind, tie the summer camp experience and this experience is that in both cases, it's not hard to find a piece of me that can respond to that moment. I have, you know, problems with my watch, looking at my phone too much, just like anybody else, right? Yeah. So I get that. And then in the case of MITT, you know, people were there for varying reasons. And I struggled because my reasons weren't as intense as some others. And so I couldn't lie. I couldn't 
misrepresent myself. I couldn't invent any shit, but I was definitely reaching into my past and looking at things that were problems in my family's issues growing up, things, issues with my parents, and using that to participate. But again, and I think this was noticed by some of the people that I was in different small groups with, it just wasn't to the same degree as other people who really were coming there with intense trauma in their past or in recent past, or really a greater sense of despair that, you know, frankly, like, I like my life. I like my work. I've found my calling and I'm in a happy marriage. Like I've got everything going for me in those ways. And a lot of people didn't have one or any of those things. Um, so by the end of it, I thought I was done. And I thought it was easy to sort of be, walk away. But on the last day, I was seriously contemplating going back, you know, I was seriously worried that I was disappointing people and I was letting them down. I mean, any sense of like that remove that I should have, I guess, I hadn't gotten, I hadn't gotten there yet. So that's, it wasn't tricky as in I was um, having to force anything to happen. It was more that I couldn't, it took a while to get out of it, I think is the way. And then once I did and started the investigative side of this, because this was too big of an experience not to sort of look at further because there had to be people out there who had had harmful experiences the way they do in LifeSpring. Once I started digging, it didn't take much, you know, and I found two people that I talk about in the article that I profile who both had psychological breaks coming out of that experience. One of them going into it with zero history of psychological problems. You know, she never had an eating disorder. She never felt anxiety in her life before. And suddenly she came out of it and she was hospitalized. So once you see that, I felt like I was able to, I could still sympathize and put myself in the place of the people who were, why they were going to it and wanted to be there. But I couldn't, I had a hard time putting myself in the shoes of the people who were running it, who were doing this to make money. How, how did you try to understand those people? Uh, just by interviewing them, mm. by reaching out. And what was their vibe like for, to a reporter? Well, the vibe, when I interviewed the founder of MITT, she was extremely open. And I said, look, I'm a reporter from GQ doing this story about new age practices in Los Angeles. I recently attended the basic training at MITT. I would love to interview you about how it started and, you know, why and other people's experiences. And she invited me to her home. She was very excited. And I, there was no misrepresentation. I certainly didn't lead her in any directions. The questions were very plain. And she asked me about my own experience. And I said, I had a mixed experience, you know, and yet I think she, this is again, just my opinion of things. I believe that it was so hard to imagine that people would not see this as a wonderful, only beneficial program for other people. That in other words, other people that I spoke to from MITT, and I interviewed a ton of people who'd had uniformly sort of positive experiences of it, had difficulty getting out of their point of view and seeing it as anything less than this wonderful new medicine, a technology is what the trainer called it, that was, you know, all of humanity should be exposed to it. I mean, the woman who runs it that I interviewed was like, I wish, you know, Oprah could do it. I wish Obama could do it. And she sort of saw it as really like world peace could be achieved if they people would just go through MITT. So it was just an extraordinary point of view uh, that I tried to, and I also had to try and give that, give a decent amount of balance to that and give her credit for her beliefs and just try to portray the two sides together in one piece that would ultimately feel balanced. So as I understand it, you did most of your investigation after having the primary experience. 
when you went back and wrote about that actual physical experience of being in there and the humiliations and the like no bathroom break stuff, it sounds to me like you approached it sincerely as yourself with your own trauma and baggage. And you also experienced a bunch of other people bringing their own sincere experiences there. How did you navigate? Like, do you have to then get a clearance from the people that you were in the room with? I I don't really know how that kind of a thing works, especially in this, which is not quite a religious context, but it's a little bit like going to someone's church. Yeah, it was really difficult. I mean, on a simple reporting and writing standpoint, it was just a ton of research, a ton of reading. I just needed to know more. I didn't know enough. And that's the history of groups like this. That's reaching out to people like Mark Fisher at the Washington Post, other people who are experts, academics, just to get on the phone and see if they can just help me understand a little bit of what I'm looking at. And then when it came time to, for example, reaching out to people who had adverse reactions, that was just combing through online forums, Yelp reviews, uh, going through the Supreme Court of the state of California and just trying to find legal records that might pertain to lawsuits that have been filed against MITT or perhaps by MITT or similar groups. Then the most difficult aspect was finding people who could vouchsafe from my experience because I'm always telling people this, that if you want to read some of the most reliable information, you know, out there in the news media, I got to give them credit. You know, the Condé Nast magazines, at least the ones that I've worked for, the fact checking departments are so hardcore and so good at what they do, probably if only to prevent Condé Nast from being sued. But so, for example, the fact checker assigned to me by GQ was wonderful, but really, and I asked her to do this, was like, I was like, hold every sentence against a gun. You know, don't let me get away with anything Not I want to or I'm trying to. But inevitably, you know, it was In the beginning, an 11,000-word piece, it eventually ran at around 8,000 words. Uh, Things will slip by in my mind that I just won't, in the midst of trying to write some thoughtful, clean sentences, I will just miss. And that may be a laziness on my part. That may just be an error or something that I pick up. And so to have the fact checker there to really scrutinize was great. But what was tricky was that getting people who were in the room to vouchsafe and I don't know if vouchsafe is the right word, but basically say like Rosecrans isn't lying. Right. He says this, this is accurate. This did happen. And, you know, we were there and everyone was anonymous in the room. You had a name tag with a first name and that was it. So it just took hours and hours of trying to reach out to people. Thankfully, MITT was at first very willing to talk to us. And I was able to find through sort of the MITT network of people, people who initially were quite happy to speak to me about their experiences. And, you know, and again, the people that I interviewed, either who were within the MITT organization or who were recent alumni were generally very positive about their experiences. Now, I would just encourage anyone to read the story and see, you know, what I think that really means. I would just put an enormous asterisk against that, that obviously people who are in the organization have a vested self-interest to be positive about their experiences. And people who are just coming out of it, who had a positive experience, you know, to me, I would attribute some of that to sort of this glow of self-awareness that comes and who knows how long that's going to last. But those people, it was just these long phone calls that I would have or the fact checker would have or my editor would have. And eventually like the legal department had gone in and asked because yeah. it just was taking forever. I mean, how did you even find like you describe these scenes where it's like people are like, can I have a glass of water? And other people start booing them, basically. Like, how do you go and find 
one of those anonymous people who was booing other people who wanted to get a water. I mean, I think just on a technical basis, I figured a lot of these people, I would bet, are probably pretty active on social media because I think Mm -hmm. a phenomenon, which I think has been widely documented, is that people present their quote-unquote best lives on Instagram and on Snapchat, on Twitter. And so I was figuring if someone's going to MITT, I bet they're on social media. And so I started combing through uh, Facebook posts that would have certain hashtags attached to it or location-based tags attached to it. And then in Facebook, you can thankfully, within their advanced search functions, not only target it to a location, but also within dates. And so I would find numerous people who were posting about their MITT experiences on Facebook, on Instagram. And so then just reaching out to people, maybe people who had left a Yelp review in the right time period, and just by a barrage of emails, you know, you send out 100 emails and eight come back. And then of the eight, four are willing to talk to you. And then you just do it again. So it was just a lot of sifting through the internet. At what point did MITT become aware that this story was not going to be an advertisement for enrolling in MITT? You know, that would be speaking for them. So I don't Uh. know. I know that we sent the fact checker, sent them the article as soon as it was published. Um, You know, again, in the conversations that I had, I was very, you know, transparent about my experience. And so I I couldn't tell you. Uh, I have never heard from them since. Hmm. Um, I haven't heard from the trainer or any of the other participants since. I have gotten a lot of emails, not a lot, but I've gotten, let's say, several, up to a dozen emails of people who went through MITT and had a similar reaction to me or had a much worse one and are reaching out and being like, hey, if you do another story, I've got stuff for you. Or, hey, did you hear about this? Or, hey, thank you for writing this, yada, yada. What was it like looking back on your own experience there and, and trying to Put the reader in your own mindset, not looking back, but actually when this was emotionally visceral for you and you were experiencing, I I guess, catharsis is what they're aiming for in these sorts of situations. It's hilarious you say it because that's literally what the woman said on the phone when I was calling to sign up. I was like, well, what do you do in these trainings? She's like, I can't tell you. I was like, well, can you give me an idea of what I'm going to experience? She's like, you get to experience catharsis. I was like, catharsis? Is that, you're promising me catharsis? Yeah. I was like, that's a big SAT word to say over the phone for $750. I wanted the reader to have as close to the visceral experience, have as much of a visceral experience as I did in that room, because I felt it was important to not only to be a good article, a good story, but to help understand why people were there. You know, I didn't care so much that the reader would understand why the organizers are profiting off these people or what they're trying to sell. But when I sat back and thought, like, what is the point of this story? The point of the story, hopefully, is to address stuff that I'm hearing that's not in MITT. You know, my dad uh, is in his 60s and he's starting a new career. And it's exciting, but it's really scary, too, as a guy who's worked for corporations his whole life to suddenly start his own business. And it's a sense of what am I doing? What's my purpose? And I'm hearing that same conversation with people that I know that are in their 20s that are saying, what am I supposed to be doing? What is my calling? And when that sense of uncertainty finally starts to not just feel like a source of anxiety, but something to do with something bigger, like really, what is your life all about? And why are you getting up in the morning? It can be super painful. And I think right now, Mark Fisher, this guy from the Washington Post, I was interviewing, and he said, this is a perfect time for a place like MITT. You know, families are fractured, politics are terrifying, and yet they're also like a soap opera and it's playing out on a daily basis. Through social media, through other forms of 
people using online media versus in-personal connection to be the basis of their relationships. There is, we are starting new kinds of relationships with people. I think technology is enabling that. There's going to be good to come from it. But we are also ripping ourselves up from hundreds of years of the ways that humans knew how to behave around other humans, you know? So it's a new time. And that's why, one, it made sense to me this was happening in Los Angeles because of that sense of newness, that sense of uncertainty. But also, I wanted the reader, they may not be in a room questioning, you know, what mommy did to them when they were six and why that means that they cannot make it as an actress in Hollywood. They may not be in a UFO religion trying to transmit, you know, positive energy to uh, North Korea. But hopefully there's something they can grab onto. What was the most challenging thing about writing about? I mean, the experience is in some ways supposed to be a little bit of a secret. Um, yeah, I think you could even say that about the summer camp or a lot of these experiences, even like field dressing a deer. They're supposed to be these things that you do for yourself and live inside you. And there's this idea that part of their power is diminished if you share them with others. I mean, in the case of some of this wellness stuff, literally you're instructed not to share That's them. Right. When, when, the, when you say what's going to go on, they say, we can't tell you. Other, like catharsis is as much as we could tell you about yeah. them. Um, and I ultimately only wrote about, I mean, I, in this story, I think I write in detail about three of the exercises. And remember, we did exercises for five days for up to 12, you know, 10 hours a day. So yeah. there's plenty I didn't write about. A lot of technology still to be revealed. <laughs> Um, what is it like, yeah, bringing those things out, those things that are supposed to be secrets? I, I, I think it is, it's been difficult for me to learn how to write about myself because when a lot of my nonfiction and then the memoir about Paris and now this new book about Los Angeles County, you know, I am part of it to a certain degree. And in writing about myself in fiction, it's a lot easier because I can put parts of myself, particularly parts that are unflattering, parts that aren't nice, parts that aren't pretty, parts that I, when I force myself to look back on what, you know, I'm really embarrassed about or what I regret and stick that into a character who on the surface of the page looks nothing like me. In fiction, that's exciting. In nonfiction, it's terrifying because I don't get to tell my story through someone else's point of view. And so when I do put myself in the center of things, it's been, I guess, it's probably quite positive for my uh, levels of self-awareness. And I'm sure it's improved my marriage. And I think it probably makes me a better friend to other people just because of realizing what a bonehead I can be and realizing my own prejudices. And I think some people you'll see, and I say this only because I can feel the temptation myself, you can make yourself a hero of your own misfortunes or your own eccentricities. And I think that is um, pretty weak beer. You know, like I think you can see that on someone pretty quickly in their prose. So, but it's tough to write about yourself, honestly, and with a degree of fairness, but I think more importantly, a degree of harshness. I think it's important for the writer, if they're writing about themselves in a truthful way, to be hard on themselves. And I don't do it very well. And I think I'm learning. And I think it's something I struggle with. So it's a great challenge. In the case of the book about Paris, and now you are writing about Los Angeles, and I understand that the Los Angeles book will also have you as a character. Yeah, my mom's already joking. She's like, okay, so what city are you moving to next? (laughs) So (laughs) does that like color how you live? Like, 
when you're living those years in Paris and you are going to work at this French advertising agency and something funny or humiliating happens, are you going, great, this is going to be great in the book when I like accidentally said that I came really hard in front of my boss, <laughs> you know, like, like, I, I guess like, I appreciate you. Un I, I should probably unpack that anecdote. Yeah, no, bit, no, yeah. you have to read the book if you want to understand how that, that came about. But like, how do you actually live when you're writing about your life? Right. I, you know, in the case of the book was called Paris, I love you, but you're bringing me down. In the case of Paris, I love you. It wasn't a book. It was me waking up in the morning before working at this ad agency in Paris. And I would get up every morning and work on a novel. And that novel was eventually published. It was called You Lost Me There. It was my first book. And as a warm-up exercise, because it's like 5.04 a.m., Paris, dark, cold. My wife and I were in this little apartment. It was just get up in front of the computer. And to warm up, I would write a diary entry on what happened the previous day. It was just what happened at the office, what happened in my personal life, whatever. And I started, this will bring us full circle. I started stringing those anecdotes together into essays that I would then publish about once every three months on the morning news. And in putting together these little essays for the morning news, it attracted Sean McDonald, uh, who at the time was an editor over at Riverhead Books. And he reached out wondering if these Paris things were ever going to become something more. And then my agent was like, well, he's got a novel that's going out. Maybe you should look at that. And so I ended up publishing my novel with Sean and then also publishing Paris, I Love You, and then my other books with him too. The point is, at the time of the Paris stuff, it was just a warm-up exercise to work on fiction. Since then, like right now, I have become a little bit of a diarist, knowing that I may be able to use it for something. So ever since we've lived in Los Angeles, I've kept a diary, if only because so many odd things would take place that are so like uniquely L.A. I mean, there was one morning. So we talked about tennis. One morning, I'm going to meet a guy to play tennis. Public tennis courts uh, in West Hollywood, six in the morning. I show up. It's a little bit misty outside. I park in the parking lot. I'm getting my rackets out of the trunk of my car and there's this guy coming towards me on a BMX bike and he looks like a strung out linebacker from the University of Nebraska, right? So imagine big jacked up dude. Uh, at the same time, really, he's been living hard or he's been, you know, living hard for a couple years and he comes up on his bike and he screeches to a stop next to me and I'm thinking I'm about to be jacked and he goes, hey, if I made a movie called Revenge City, would you go watch it? And I was like, what? <laughs> and he repeats himself. He said, if I made a movie called Revenge City, would you go see it? I thought for a second. And I was like, well, based on the title, yeah. He's like, yeah, that's what I thought. And he pedaled away. I was like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> so sometimes there's some things that are too good not to write down. You uh, spoke early, uh, and I appreciate your uh, transparency about uh, the morning news's uh, rates, which uh, now makes me comfortable asking you about money. Yeah. Um, what kind of a living is all? I mean, you do a lot of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> largely out of nonfiction articles for uh, like. You're running the entire publishing gamut. Yeah, and my wife and I work as a screenwriting team in Hollywood. But it's mostly out of a terrifying sense of financial instability. You know, it's never been a completely secure living. And it's just, you know, these days it's not completely month to month. It's more like six months to six months. But it's terrifying. When I go speak to classes, when I sit in front of a panel at a book fair and people ask, like, what's the, you know, what's the hardest part about writing? I'm like, it's not the writing. 
it's the credit card bills. You know, it's trying to someday save so that I'm not bagging groceries, you know, when I'm 63, which I may be, who knows? And so it's, uh, the money is, it is what it is. And I'm not complaining. I'm not, you know, I'm an extremely fortunate position to be doing what I'm doing. And the fact that I am not right now doing anything else but this is amazing, you know? And so I'm lucky as hell, but it's definitely uh, the primary concern. How do you choose on a given week, a given month, a given six month span? Like you got six months till the next uh, paycheck cycle. Yeah. Um, like, is there a certain like this one pays me, this one doesn't pay me like balance? Like, w- how do you set your docket up? It certainly is a calculation, but I can't say it's anything more than sometimes just random chance. You know, for every story that I place in GQ or get assigned a feature, you know, I'm pitching 10, maybe 20. Um, I also write a bit for travel magazines, and that's a similar thing. I'll have one story a year for travel and leisure or one story a year for afar, and that's based on eight pitches that didn't go. That just is how it works. And so it's just a constant uh, work process. You know, my wife and I both work because she's a writer as well. We both work seven days a week, probably. We work at night. I get up at five in the morning. Um, I certainly take time to, you know, exercise and uh, I find time to drink wine and I find time to watch way too much television and read too much fiction. It's it's a wonderful life. It just means it's just a grind and it's uh, no complaints. What have you learned about pitching? Like, um, if you're pitching, what would you say, one out of eight or so, one out of ten? Yeah, probably. Has that batting average improved over the last <laughs> 20 years? It, it improves as you get to know your editor and as you get to know your publisher and you get to see what they enjoy publishing. You know, the Jim Nelson GQ, which was a wonderful publication for so many years and published so many writers that I personally admire, you got to know their tastes and what would work for them and also what might surprise them. It might be something they would go for. One thing I've seen younger or more sort of up and coming writers struggle with in that world is knowing how to talk about their work. You know, my agent goes out, I believe, to, or maybe one of his colleagues goes out to the University of Iowa every year and sits down with the people coming out of the MFA program. And his main complaint is that they can't talk about their work, that it takes them, you know, 10 minutes to summarize what their book is about. And I get that we all want to be artists who are left to prowl the forest in our capes. I want that too. But at a certain level, you realize that half the business is selling. And I mean the business side. I don't mean the art of sitting down in front of your notepad or your computer and working on your fiction. That's great. But when you decide to do more with it than have it sit in front of your eyeballs, you need to learn how to talk about it. And you need to learn how to summarize it. And you need to learn how to talk about your characters as if they're characters and not just these wonderful tornadoes of ideas and feelings. Uh, Because otherwise, people are going to sit there and stare at you and wait to hear about the next thing. When you're pitching somewhere, um, let's say like in a far or a travel and leisure, that's um, it's got a bit more of a regular format. You know, when I w- uh, I probably have only read a few issues of Afar, but they've got this is what an Afar feature looks like. Are you trying to hit a bullseye and say like this is exactly what you guys do? I can do that. Are you trying to say? I'm kind of off your beat, you know, the beaten path for you. Are you trying to find somewhere in the middle? Like in terms of an editor sort of recognizing who you are and what their general format is and where the specific piece you're pitching fits into that spectrum. How do you think about that? 
you want to set yourself up for success. Now, that's sort of a cliche, but in this case, I think it applies in that you want to make it easy on the editor to say yes. And that will change depending on who you are, where you're coming from, what the story is. But you don't pitch travel and leisure, you know, a story that belongs in outside or a story that belongs in Newsweek. It's a travel magazine. You're not writing a profile of a celebrity for them, right? So that's, I mean, it's obvious, but you'd be surprised when I've worked with students how not obvious that is. And you learn as much as you can about the publication. You learn the masthead. You see what other people they've published. You read the style of it and you figure out what they publish. And then you figure out what do I bring that's special? Because the editor wants probably at least two very important things. One, they want to know, and this is a cliche also, but unfortunately it holds true every time, is they want to know why are you the one person to write it versus, you know, Joe or Jane Schmo down the street. In other words, what do you bring to it that's a little bit different that's going to make them feel like they can go to their boss and sell it? And then two, what makes this story special right now you know there's just there's i don't know of any magazine that doesn't want their stories to feel a little bit pressing or a little bit important to the times i mean even ones that are more esoteric or are you know some obscure foodie journal or a laugh quarterly or something that just doesn't feel like it's following the news cycle day by day beat by beat no one wants to feel irrelevant you know, when they're putting all this care into publishing their magazine and they're investing all this time into it. So if you can make them feel like my story is part of that next issue that you're excited about putting out there, then they suddenly have a reason to sell you because they have to sell you to somebody. You know, they have to turn to their editor-in-chief. The editor-in-chief has to turn to the advertiser. The advertiser, you know, has to turn to their... Everyone has to sell. And so once you get into that frame and just set aside your art for a second and think about how am I going to be a part of this business it's mercantile you know i sometimes feel a lot more like a cobbler you know or like a basket weaver than i do a writer when i'm trying to deal with this crap but it's you know i this is how i make my living thank you so much for this interview my pleasure thank you Hey, thanks for listening. Uh, This show was edited by Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Tyler McCloskey. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. We're brought to you by incredible supporting partners like MailChimp and Pit Writers at the University of Pittsburgh. I think I'm going over there doing a live show sometime in March, so keep tuned on that front. We'd love to hear from you. Feedback guests you'd like to hear maybe you want to sponsor the show it's all there for you podcast at longform.org be back next week why do you run why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.